Hey, this is Mohal Joshi from Los Angeles, California. I follow Indian foreign policy and defense with a special focus on Asia. You can follow me on Twitter at Mohal Joshi. Hey, this is Kishore Narayan from Bengaluru in India. I am an international relations expert specializing in global security, conflict resolution, and international negotiation. My focus areas include peace building and digital diplomacy. You can find me on Twitter at Veggie Diplomat. Hello and welcome to episode 44 of India Rising, Strategic Affairs Conversation with Mohal and Kishore, a show in which we analyze the happenings from around the world and their impact on India. Today, we will be talking about the hottest topic in discussion right now around the world, and that is about uh, the attack by Hamas on Israel and the subsequent counterattack by Israel on Hamas in Gaza. So uh, where did it all begin? It began with a coordinated attack by Hamas across various parts of Israel, primarily in South Israel. So in the early hours of October 7, under the cover of a massive rocket barrage, and less than a day after Israel marked the somber 50th anniversary of the outbreak of the Yom Kippur War, hundreds of heavily armed Hamas fighters from the Gaza Strip penetrated Israel's border by land, air, and sea in the first invasion of its sovereign territory. Hamas executed a stunning military surprise breaching the Israeli border in multiple ways and attacking more than 20 Israeli population centers and also military bases. Militants kidnapped dozens of Israelis, including children and the elderly, and captured military personnel. Israeli social media and news outlets filled with calls for help from families in the southern Israeli towns, which were occupied by Hamas, sheltering in their homes as armed terrorists went door to door. The failure of the Israel's intelligence and preparedness was second only to that of the 1973. Now, the attacks via land, air, and via sea, plus the information war of gruesome videos of hostages and innocent civilians being executed or kidnapped, uh, hogged the limelight across all news on that day. Now, as the news broke, there were global reactions and uh, expectedly along uh, uh, predefined lines. Now, Qatar officially sided with Hamas, calling Israel responsible for today's terror, uh, terror attack in Israel. In fact, Qatar gave an issue, uh, issued a statement on that very same day. Um, similarly, Indian Prime Minister Modi also uh, tweeted that day, saying that he was deeply shocked by the news of terror attacks in Israel. Our thoughts and prayers are with the innocent victims and their families, and that India stands in solidarity with Israel at this difficult hour. Kingdom of Saudi Arabia on the same day, also issued a statement saying that it was closely following the development of the unprecedented situation between a number of the Palestinian factions and the Israeli occupation forces, which had resulted in a high level of violence across several fronts. So 
the global reaction I had was along expected lines. Now, immediately after that, Israel uh, uh, arranged a hastily convened cabinet meeting. And at the end of that cabinet meeting, uh, the government of Israel declared that it was uh, entering a state of war against Hamas in Gaza. Now, as it did, it set a 24-hour deadline for all citizens in the northern part of Gaza to evacuate. In addition, Israel also shut off all electricity, water, fuel, and other goods that it supplied to Gaza on a regular basis. So, uh, the stage was set for a major counterattack, and uh, Hamas uh, kind of uh, stood their ground. Now, uh, a much much of uh, Hamas's strong position comes from the historical perspective of how it was able to append not only uh, Israel from Gaza, but also kind of uh, push the Fatah or the Palestinian Authority or the Palestinian Liberation Organization away from Gaza and kind of uh, hijack the Palestinian cause or the Gazan cause uh, through their terror means. So in a way, once the Second Intifada was defeated, the then Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon had taken a bold step by claiming that uh, Israel would not only withdraw from the entire Gaza Strip uh, and also put up a fence, hoping that it would leave the Palestinians there alone and that uh, that kind of a measure would be reciprocated by the Gazan people. And we all know that it did not happen. In fact, in 2006, Hamas uh, won elections in Gaza and soon consolidated its hold on the territory, pushing out Mahmoud Abbas's Fatah group. It saw the territory as a base from which it could prepare for a final clash with Israel and was soon accumulating weapons, including with Iranian help in um, rockets as well. So in a way, we now had two power centers in Palestine, one in Gaza, uh, headed by Hamas, and the other in the West Bank, uh, in the Jordanian River West Bank, uh, where Mahmoud Abbas's Fatah group was in power. And Israel uh, kind of uh, kept claiming that there were two power centers in Palestine. And even if we have to talk uh, peace with Palestine, we don't know whom to talk with. So this intense power struggle would manifest in multiple ways. Uh, through the year, and we will talk about that later. But um, as as we know, uh, Hamas would always try to append uh, the, their power over Fatah. Anyway, so uh, once we had all that, we had the major players in the region, like Iran, Saudi, and even Israel, kind of having their own power play from time to time. So... Uh, while we know while we know that there was this kind of a power play going on, uh, there was also there were also multiple attempts to end the rapprochement between the Israel and Arab states that had been uh, started in earnest during the Trump administration. Uh, we all know that uh, during the Trump administration, uh, there was an Abraham Accord that was signed between Israel on one side 
UAE and Bahrain uh, on the other side, uh, ably supported by a few more uh, Islamic countries of the region. So uh, again, this initiative was pioneered and led by uh, President Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. And uh, this, uh, the bargaining chip here was that uh, the UAE and Bahrain would recognize the state of Israel for the very first time. Morocco and Sudan also, uh, over the period of time, uh, normalized their ties with Israel. Now, this was kind of uh, uh, the first time that this was happening, that the Arab nations uh, had uh, recognized the state of Israel, uh, acknowledged the existence of Israel. Until now, it had not happened simply because uh, the Arab nations had uh, cited that the treatment of a treatment of Palestinians by Israel was a reason that they would not recognize the Jewish uh, state. Now, with the Abraham Accord being signed, uh, the Palestinians opposed the agreement, fearing that their cause would be ignored. Indeed, um, as part of the Abraham Accord, uh, Kushner, Jared Kushner, also tried to provide some kind of a monetary relief for uh, Palestinian projects. And he said that uh, he would kind of uh, try to arrange around $50 billion, quite a hefty amount, now uh, as part of some kind of a fundraising activity. But, however, that did not happen simply because the Palestinians boycotted an investment conference that he had hosted in Bahrain in 2019. Uh, at the same time, uh, a little after that, the Trump administration uh, also moved the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Tel Aviv is on the Mediterranean coast. Jerusalem, as we all know, uh, is kind of uh, uh, very close to the West Bank and uh, claimed by uh, the Palestinians as well. Now, uh, this kind of a shifting of the uh, U.S. embassy had not been done by the previous administration simply because they deemed it to be too provocative to the Palestinians who kept claiming uh, not only parts of East Jerusalem, but also the entirety of the uh, the culturally and historically important uh, city of Jerusalem. Uh, Biden administration, on the other hand, uh, largely continued the Trump administration's approach. In fact, the U.S. embassy still remains in Jerusalem, and the Biden team is now seeking to broker a deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Now, if that materializes, this would totally help to reshape the Middle East even more than what the Abraham Accord ever managed. Now, this deal seems to have been moving forward in small but significant ways. Israeli planes uh, now have overflight rights over the Saudi Kingdom. An Israeli cabinet minister uh, just recently, uh, as recently as last month, visited the Saudi Kingdom, uh, the first time this, this had ever happened. And an Israeli official conducted a Jewish prayer service in Saudi Arabia last week. Uh, again, uh, last week uh, prior to the attack. Again, this is something that had happened for the very first time. In fact, I had tweeted on the day of the Hamas attack, and uh, I read it verbatim now. Peace in Middle East is very fragile. 
It took two presidencies of Trump and Biden to work towards Abraham Accord, I2U2 uh, uh, summit, and the India-Middle East-Europe corridor by taking Saudi, UAE, Jordan, and Israel into confidence. It, it took one day of terror attacks by Iran-backed Hamas deep inside Israel to undo all the good work. Saudi Arabia had been promised nukes since Iran was almost on the verge of having one for themselves. This is a peculiar side moment in the Middle East. A decision now will have long-term consequences either way. And that was what I had tweeted on that day. So uh, this is uh, a kind of a lengthy uh, context background to what happened. Now, uh, we'll, we'll delve into uh, the military and security aspects. And uh, Mohal, uh, can you explain why Israel was kind of uh, left flat-footed? They had no clue what was happening. And yeah. essentially, they were surprised. Yeah, so before I delve into that, I wanted to like expand on your thought on the 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 Iran Saudi uh, Israel power play. So I think what had happened is that um, the Palestinians like had felt that they were being kind of left behind in this new world where these new alliances were being stretched up. I mean, Israel thought that with its growing economy and its growing economic clout on the world stage, it can shape or forge new alliances and keep the history, I mean, the, the past, the history in the past, where geo-economic times like uh, political causes, but unfortunately, these events have proven that uh, it's not easy to wish away uh, the Palestinian cause and it has come again to the forefront. So geoeconomics does matter in today's uh, highly interconnected developing world, but uh, there are also limitations to it. And I think the Palestinians were feeling like they were being sold down the river probably by not being included as part of these discussions because there was not a lot of mention of Palestine. And yes. uh, including, I think, uh, uh, recent statements by Saudis mentioned that they were like uh, kind of on the back burner. So this would uh, be a, like a proxy move by Iran to ensure that uh, like these, it torpedoes the efforts of these uh, normalization of relationship between Israel and the part of the Middle East. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a way, while uh, Palestine, uh, Palestine uh, Authority uh, rightly felt that they were being uh, uh, shortchanged here, uh, and the fact that not only Bahrain, but also UAE and Saudi were kind of uh, uh, taking a totally different path altogether. Iran, on the other hand, kind of uh, kept uh, upping the rhetoric, telling that we continue to uh, stand for the Palestinians, we continue to uh, fight for their cause. And I think uh, this was an opportune moment for them to uh, kind of do something big and also uh, tell not only to uh, Palestinians, but also to the overall uh, Muslim uh, world uh, at large to tell that we stand for Palestine uh, uh, nation and for the Palestine people. And, and therefore did we Qatar are also the... do the same? Sorry, uh, to interrupt, but did Qatar also 
do the same or they just they were just housing the hamas uh they, leadership yeah. they they just did that i mean i uh, i don't think uh, they would have uh, helped militarily but definitely uh, in other front they would have so uh, the point then is who is the true representative of the muslim uh, uh, community at large uh, global community and that is where uh, iran tried to seize the moment for itself mohan yeah yeah so so moving on to their earlier question sorry for digressing there uh, like why was israel surprised now it's kind of interesting that uh, like just 8 days before uh, the us national security advisor jake sullivan said and i quote the middle east region is quieter today than it has been in two decades uh, end quote so it, it seems that not only the israelis were caught unprepared but even like the united states and i mean by extension the five eyes i mean i know like people are joking that like they were more interested in the so called plumber like nijer <laughs> and they had more information <laughs> on the plumber or is the uh, such a big terrorist attack so anyways yeah. like uh, jokes apart so uh, even like the previous week the iranian supreme leader uh, ayatollah ali uh, khamenei said that uh, quote countries that make the gamble of normalization with israel will lose they are betting on a losing horse end quote so there were like some signs that like uh, people hadn't uh, paid attention to this i mean do note that a attack of this scale like where i think they had like attack like 20 settlements on the israeli side or kibbutz i think as they say would require quite extensive planning and it was attacked through air via paragliders they came in via fast boats uh through the mediterranean sea and also through land via motorcycles and uh, jeeps so this would require quite a significant amount of planning i mean what the reports say that israel was distracted by the terrorist incidents in the west bank which have spiked over the past year and uh, like quite a few like almost like 30 israelis and 200 palestinians have been clish, uh, killed in clashes with israel the army and police now violence has um, uh peaked in 2023 i think it's they're saying it's the deadliest year in like 80 almost 18 years with almost daily clashes uh there have been eviction orders against uh palestinian families which have resulted in violent clashes at the al aqsa mosque which is like one of the holiest sites in islam uh the israeli military also has uh, escalated raids uh in refugee camps and um, battled the many of the terrorists so this has quite uh, the, the west bank is quite active to say the least um another point is like uh, hamas seems to have like as per experts like gone completely old school in in what i mean is like avoided electronic uh, communication which could be monitored by israel especially so the they uh, they might have broken down the various subcells to for all the task into various and then maybe they might have done more word of mouth communication versus electronic or maybe they are using encrypted devices which is beyond the reach of the israeli intelligence uh, sources also the electronic systems on the border on which israel had invested a billion dollars i mean was rendered useless i mean lot of the cameras and sensors did not uh, 
help stopping these attacks because like as you saw in some of the videos there were like uh, electronic sensors which on which the palestinian drones drop grenades and bombs and them disable them so they were kind of blind when the attack was going in uh, another angle what they say is that um, hamas gave the uh, try to fool the israelis by trying to not fight i mean uh, they hamas has been pretty quiet over the last couple of years so they are trying they are doing an uh, they are using a tactic to mislead the israelis by giving an impression that they wanted more for the betterment of gaza and they were not interested in even uh, they were not ready for a fight uh, also they had applied uh, for a lot of uh, work permits for gazans to work across the border in uh, israel i mean it, it the 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 restraint shown by Hamas, I mean, it did draw public criticism from supporters. Uh, built an impression that Hamas had more economic concerns and not a war on its mind. So it, it got so bad for Hamas at one point that even the more moderate Palestinian Authority, uh, President Mahmoud Abbas and his Fatah group, they mocked Hamas for going quiet. I mean, which is quite a statement in itself. So. Uh, like in one Fatah statement in published in last June, the group accused Hamas leaders of fleeing to Arab capitals to live in the luxurious hotels and villas and leaving their people behind in poverty in Gaza. <laughs> now, Israel had like long prided itself to infiltrate and monitor these uh, terrorist groups. But uh, so like Hamas did make a lot of... Uh, uh, countermeasures to avoid like human i think the human intelligence was sorely lacking in this field that uh that they were caught completely unaware i mean uh they use quite a bit of resources i mean uh the first move as you said was firing a lot of rockets and it was also coincided with incursions with fighters with hand gliders or uh motorized paragliders they also stormed the, they used bulldozers to st storm down an electric monitoring fence. So they breached the fence in multiple places and the fighters poured, poured out of these breaches on motorbikes. Uh, so it was like very old school methods of just uh, running down. And then also the commando unit, they attacked some of their uh, Israeli army headquarters and jammed its communication. So there was a lot of chaos. I think some reports say that the Israeli units took almost three to four hours until like almost noon. Many of them were paralyzed and they weren't able to help the citizens who were desperately yeah. calling calling for help. Uh, also, like there are reports, I mean, this is unconfirmed that senior intelligence uh, officials in Egypt had warned uh, Israel of something big was happening from Gaza. But I think Israel focused to, on the West Bank and downplayed the Gaza uh, situation. I mean... Uh, there are also reports that uh, Israel might have gone too, gotten too confident in its technological sophistication that it got lulled into a false sense of uh, security. Um, I think uh, one of the things was like uh, Andrew Exam in one of the articles in the, I, think, I believe the Atlantic, he says like is, that Israel has an excellent air, air force, special ops, but it's like conventional units is made a lot of large, I'm, just, I'm paraphrasing here made up of conscripts which are neither well-trained or nor well-disciplined by American standards. So they are, basically he means to say that the conscript militaries, they are always have changing of, there's always change because they are like people who are coming in and coming out. So the 
the turnover is too high to bring develop proficiency in like many military tasks and also a lot of these conventional forces were deployed in the west bank fighting the daily incidents of uh, rioting and terrorism and they lightly guarded the the gaza border now the gaza border was an electronic monitored fence so it gave it lulled them into a false sense of security that we they don't need enough deployment at the gaza border versus west bank which was technically more hot and active so some of the deployments moved to west bank which kind of uh, gave like the the terrorists a free run when they entered uh uh, the southern part of Israel. Now, there will be like a lot of investigations as to what happened and why they were, uh, why they were like miss, why was there not enough human intelligence? What did the electronic counter espionage fail? I mean, some people say that basically there's never, it was just like a, I mean, they're calling it Israel's 9-11 where there's a failure of imagination that the signs were there but they failed to connect the dots just like the 9-11 commission said there was a failure of imagination to connect the dots i mean the the pieces of the pieces of intelligence was there but they weren't able to con connect it uh all together so and then the last report that we just read was uh the axis had an article that israeli intelligence did finally see some signs of hamas activity in gaza the night before the attack and there were some consultations to see whether they should forward deploy or change the deployment. But by the time uh, they decided to move, it was it was like too late. Uh, they did move little some forces, but it wasn't enough. And uh, this lack of preparation, the lack of counterintelligence, the lack of imagination, all came to bite back uh, Israel very heavily in the end. So I think there will be a lot of soul searching in the Israeli defense community. I mean, I mean, Mossad, I mean, if you look at all the literature out there, or if you see any movies or TV shows or like the father, like the series, like they have gained a sort of mythical status in terms of like, they're the best in the world. They're the top of the top, the cream, the la cream in like counterintelligence, espionage. And this would be like a big blot on their uh, record. And this will bring them down to earth, like kind of in a some way, shape or form that even they are prone to making mistakes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this would be, I think that's because the, I mean, like over a thousand people dead and the attacks in 20 different places it means that it has to be like a lot of signals being missed. It just can't be like, I mean, a lone wolf attack is pretty hard to predict and you cannot... Uh, but when you are such a large group of attackers, then there has to be some kind of communication back and forth. So there has to be a lot of dots being not connected and missed. And uh, they would have to revamp their security and intelligence too. And there'll also be lessons learned, which I'll come to later for like the Indian situation. So Kishore? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, you hit the nail on the head where uh, you pointed out that the uh, the aura built around uh, the mm -hmm. Israeli, Israeli yeah. uh, counterintelligence uh, capabilities came crashing down. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, one one uh, picture that will remain with me for a long, long time is how when the when these attacks were happening and how uh, the Hamas terrorists were uh, busy taking down one uh, uh, defense base 
ഫൈറ്റ്മോയിൽ we all know that uh, the israeli prime minister benjamin netanyahu has kind of uh, had had a end um, uh, inning i kind of uh, lost <laughs> count of uh, how many times has he come back from uh, uh, political sanya uh, uh, and uh, this time around i think uh, he is now uh, again leading a multi party coalition center right coalition and uh, to to avoid getting arrested to avoid getting uh, being put behind bars he he somehow trying to do some kind of uh, judicial reform and that uh, that has not gone down well with uh, the average uh, israeli on the street and therefore uh, the uh, uh, the opposition and also the people have been gathering <clears throat> have been gathering in jerusalem trying to uh, protest the judicial reform and uh, that has kind of split the israeli society right down the middle and uh, that is where the uh, entire uh, focus has been for the israeli government in the past uh, year year and a half now hebrew university professor dimitri shumsky had uh, written provocatively that for years for years uh, prime minister benjamin netanyahu had developed and advanced a destructive warped political doctrine that held that strengthening hamas at the expense of the palestinian authority would be good for israel however this approach divided the palestinians undermined the palestinian authority in the west bank and made it easy for netanyahu to claim that there was no path to a palestinian state the purpose of the doctrine was to perpetuate the rift between hamas in gaza and the palestinian authority in the west bank this way it would preserve the diplomatic paralysis and forever remove the danger of negotiations with the palestinians over the partition of israel into two states on the argument that the palestinian authority does not represent all the palestinians Now in an interview with the Ynet news website on May 5 2019 Netanyahu associate Gershon Hakochen uh, a major general in reserves had said and I quote him we need to tell the truth Netanyahu's strategy is to prevent the option of two states so he is turning Hamas into his closest partner openly Hamas is an enemy covertly it is an ally unquote now at the same time uh, in 2019 in a tweet channel 13 had quoted egyptian president hosni mubarak saying and i quote again netanyahu is not interested in a two state solution rather he wants to separate gaza from the west bank 
as he told me at the end of 2010, unquote. Mubarak said this during an interview with the Kuwaiti daily Al-Anba. Now, thanks to the funneling of millions of Qatari dollars to Gaza, with Netanyahu's repeated approval as part of a deliberate and malicious policy aimed at nothing other than burying the two-state solution, Hamas had gone on to acquire inordinate military capabilities within a relatively short time. And this resulted in the current situation, which has now taken the lives of more than 1,000 Israelis. Again, Netanyahu's proposed overhaul of the judiciary royal the Israeli society, as I told earlier, leading to massive public protests. Hundreds of essential military reservists pledged to refuse to show up for duty if the overhaul passed. Investigators must now ask whether this domestic turmoil weakened Israeli deterrence, not only by influencing enemy perceptions, but also by eroding Israel's actual intelligence capabilities and military readiness. The Netanyahu government uh, was pursuing a policy premised on the notion that it could ignore the Palestinian issue and make a deal directly with the Gulf Arab states, who had now become increasingly nervous about Iran's rise in the region and were eager to tie up with Israel's booming technology-driven economy. The assumptions behind that strategy exploded late last week. Uh, so now, could this be a strategic move by Hamas aimed to tell the international community that we alone decide for Palestine? Now that is a, a real possibility. At the end of the day, while it is true that the Palestinian Authority is the legitimate representative of the Palestinian people, the Palestinian Authority's influence has always been limited compared with that of Hamas. It is the unfortunate reality that in the failed states of this part of the world, illegitimate armed representatives like Hamas, Hezbollah in Lebanon, or the Houthis in Yemen will always have the upper hand. Meanwhile, the Palestinian Authority has no choice but to support Hamas in order to avoid further internal Palestinian friction. Therefore, it can only be perceived as even weaker globally. However, here are the cons of Hamas's most recent adventure. It gives Netanyahu a way out of his internal political turmoil at a rare moment when even members of their own Israeli military were opposing him. Now it is a full-scale war to protect Israel and rescue the kidnapped soldiers and civilians. So it is now a case of all hands on deck. It also further empowers his right-wing coalition at a time when the world has been trying to convince them to back down and tempt them with peace proposals. Uh, late in December 2022, Israel inaugurated its most far-right and religious government, led by Netanyahu and her Likud party. This coalition government included two ultra-Orthodox parties and three far-right parties, such as the religious Zionist party, affiliated with the West Bank settler movement. Netanyahu made various concessions to secure a governing majority, to drawing criticism for prioritizing the exp expansion of Israeli settlements in the West Bank, which now undermines the prospects for a two-state solution.
Iran appears to be engaged in a three-stage process. A, weaken Fatah, B, providing an alternate model for Palestinian action, and C, pushing Hamas forward as an organization that can ultimately become the political, uh, become the principal representative of the Palestinian people. So what Hamas gains will be lost to, will be a loss to Fatah, which finds itself uh, more and more beleaguered from all sides. And it's difficult to see how Fatah will now emerge from this predicament, especially if uh, Palestinian elections are eventually held again. Okay, so that is about the uh, domestic political compulsion within Israel that may have contributed to the situation that we see today. But more importantly for us, let's also look at it from an Indian perspective, from an Indian angle, and see how we can uh, learn our lessons from what happened out there in Israel. Mohal, you want to elaborate on that now? Yeah, so post these events, um, the Director General of the NSG, uh, M.A. Ganpati, like, uh, was asked about the events in Israel. So he emphasized the importance of human element and the skilled personnel in counterterrorism efforts. Uh, he also said that in wake of the terror attack in Israel, India needs to have a crisis management response framework at the national level on extreme terrorist scenarios. He said that uh, despite the technological advancements, it is man and the weapon which makes the final difference. I think this is something we also brought up that, I mean, see, Israel built up a billion dollar fence, right, with a lot yeah. of electronic surveillance. But actually, it's the boots on the ground, which will, uh, it, what makes a difference in the end is the boots on the ground. I mean, there is no easy substitute for boots on the ground. I mean, electronic and cyber can be a force multiplier, no doubt, in the modern world technological era. But in absence, uh, I mean, you are asking for like trouble. I mean, I mean, uh, as you see in Israel, a billion dollar fence, which was lightly manned, was destroyed by a bulldozer within minutes, creating a gap mm -hmm. through which the Hamas fighters, uh, fighters poured into southern Israel. Uh, as I said earlier, the electronic surveillance posts were disabled via bombs and grenades released by drones, you know, so hampering the visibility. So if you like, I mean, there's never like a apples to apples comparison to the Indian scenario. But let's say like, I mean, in Jammu and Kashmir, I mean, which has seen a prolonged stretch of normalcy post the revocation of uh, Article 370. Now, direct rule from uh, center like Delhi with uh, JNKB now branded as a union territory, or sorry, as a convert as a union territory has led in many cases strict action against like folks uh, who didn't desire normalcy in the state and who were like, uh, like, not wanting normals and they all just wanted to have agitation and uh, riots uh, and trouble in the valley. So these people have been put under control now, but this peace should not lull the security forces into a false sense of security. And we always have to keep our eyes out and the guard up. I mean, with national elections coming up in six months time in India, it is not beyond the realm of possibility that Pakistan might provoke India with some sort of spectacular terrorist attack. I mean, one just has to look at the, just before, like a couple of months before the last general election in 2019, we had the Pulwama tragedy where like 50 mm -hmm. plus CRPF Jawans mm -hmm. lost their lives in a vehicle-based suicide bombing. So these just bring the challenges that... Uh, 
uh, we have to be cognizant of. Also, I think as Andrew Exam said, like lot of the some of the issues obviously such a large failure is a combination of multiple factors one was the conscripts so uh they don't have a like a all volunteer force i mean because israel is a very small population but like india in comparison is a much larger population now we have this agni weed scheme because it will mm-hmm. reduce the 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 pension bill and the the expenses of the salaries because the it's growing exponentially post uh, OROP. So to keep it in, to have more money left over for like CapEx expenditure, maybe they introduced the Agni scheme where soldiers will serve for like uh, four years and then they a certain percent, I was forget, like I think it's 25, 50% will retire and the rest will remain in the army. So eventually I think, and this is something that uh, Lieutenant General, retired Lieutenant General PR Shankar, uh, brought up in his recent podcast that by middle of next decade, as per his calculations, and which he said like nobody has been able to challenge him on, fifty uh, percent of the the fighting force, the main mm-hmm. fighting force, uh, so this is not the senior officers, like the junior folks, will be composed of Agni Veer. So now eventually, like we don't want to be, India doesn't want to be caught up like maybe a decade from now because of the high churn or turnover in terms of the the, the fighting men being Agni Veers, then we don't want to be in a situation where like we the lack of training and expertise is lost as the churn occurs with a new batch of Agni Veers constantly. So this is also something, I mean, it's not a short-term thing, but over the years, we don't want to be like, um, have a high percentage of, uh, uh, I wouldn't say conscript force, but a churning force, you know? So that's yeah. another point. Now, coming to the political angle, I mean, Prime Minister Modi has strongly condemned the terror attacks and made it clear that India stands uh, in solidarity with Israel. Now, but the in contrast, the Congress Working Committee, uh, the Indian National Congress Committee, uh, I mean, expressed its, uh, quote, dismay and anguish, unquote, over the war and underlined its support for the Palestinian people's right to uh, land and self-government and to live with dignity and respect, end quote. So now, see, like recently in the last podcast, we had praised the Congress party, which has been a lot of criticism from uh, BJP and many folks about its uh, foreign policy, which is kind of uh, perplexing at times, like where they take like uh, strange stands. And they were at least in unison pushing back against Justin Trudeau and the soft support for Khalistanis, like which we praised the Congress party for. But again, this is like, uh, maybe that was the outlier and this is like reversion to the mean where again, they didn't uh, harshly criticize Hamas for the terrorist attacks where like over a thousand people lost their lives and it was more about Palestinian causes. I mean, this could very well be a statement from let's say a Middle Eastern country versus like the main opposition party in India, which is kind of contrasting to the other political parties in the West, you know. So, I mean, critics of uh, PM Modi have said that, oh, he's making strong statements because of his anti-minority stance. But like, see, many people are missing the overall picture. Modi has continued the Indian policy of a two-state solution, which has been going on from probably like the first Prime Minister, Prime Minister Nehru, I would say. Yeah, yeah. So, but the thing that has changed is like during the Modi years, we had the first president I mean, sorry, the first presidential visit by an Indian president, like the late Pranav Mukherjee, who visited Ramallah in the West Bank in 2015, I think he came entered from the Israeli side. And then subsequently in 2018, 
Prime Minister Modi himself visited Ramallah, I believe, from the Jordanian side. From Jordan, and yeah. he and he on record reiterated the support for the two-state solution. So in uh, it's not like that because like in some people's mind that oh Modi is against like minorities of Muslims, like he's not supporting Palestine, he's supporting Israel at the moment. It's just like people want to just make a cheap political point and not look mm. at the overalls. Like 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 across governments, BJP Congress. Um, uh, we had gentle prime ministers like they all have supported the two-state solution but I mean in times of such a ghastly attack where so many people innocent people have lost their lives the prime minister chooses to make a stand where that we stand with Israel because of the uh, the barbaric nature of the attack now also remember like India many times has voted against Israeli resolutions against Palestine but at the same time also has abstained from resolutions which are brought up by many countries in the Middle East against Israel. So it's kind of, we do this balancing act. So I know like some foreign policy commentators like uh, Derek Grossman, I mean, from United States, I say like, oh, India's policy might become more delicate today. I think it was always delicate to begin with. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a continuing balance. I mean, we do support the two-state solution, which is pro-Palestine position. But when we 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 denounce the this uh, terrorist attack, which is like a pro-Israeli position. So, I mean, just like as we saw in Ukraine, I think it's just a delicate balancing act we need to constantly doing. I mean, that's like um, what we call the uh, the independent foreign policy that we uh, propose. Sorry, I can't remember the word right now. You Strategic know. autonomy. Yeah, strategic autonomy. Say thank you. <laughs> so the strategic autonomy that we—I mean, it's like on a vast variety of issues. Like you know, uh, you could be—I mean, sorry, I'm digressing here, but like on a climate change, you could agree with China, but then on freedom of navigation of seas, you could agree with U.S. against China, but on yeah. climate change, you would agree with China against U.S. So I mean, it's just like—I uh, mean, as uh, Foreign Minister Jay Shankar, when he was, I think, uh, Foreign Secretary, I think he did mention is like issue-based alignment. So. So, Kishore? Yeah. And uh, I think uh, uh, just to add to your point, the Indian angle, uh, Israeli PM Benjamin Netanyahu thanked Modi profusely for yeah. calling him and also extending support. So that was uh, an interesting development. Now, the other point was, I totally agree with you when uh, uh, Congress kind of missed the uh, crux of the context telling, uh, not not uh, condemning the terror attack. I think that was something that they should have done. Uh, it, it's okay to stand with uh, reiterating your stand for an independent Palestine, which time and again always gets the limelight. But I think uh, this was not the time for that. I think this was more a time to uh, denounce mm -hmm. the terror attack, and I think Congress missed a trick there. But anyway, uh, we'll we'll leave it there. Now, in addition, I think uh, uh, we now have a situation where uh, most of the uh, most of the Western capitals are now siding with Israel, and uh, most of the uh, Islamic capitals are now siding with uh, Palestine. So I think mm -hmm. it's again becoming a global issue where uh, the split is wide open right in the middle mm -hmm. and this will continue to manifest in multiple forms, possibly 
in the United Nations Security Council as well. The General mm-hmm. Assembly also we might have a vote. So I think all that will happen. There might be some kind of armed twisting uh, the Israelis to stop their invasion of uh, Gaza. So I think all that will happen. So uh, internationally also there might be uh, quite a bit of uh, 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 behind the curtains kind of uh, scenario where they will try to uh, cut down on the violence as such. And uh, Israel, for on their part, I think they cannot be seen to be weak now. So I think mm-hmm. uh, o- overtly they will not agree to anything, uh, to anything yeah. other than uh, uh, continuing their attack. So if if somebody tells them to back off, Israel will not agree to that kind of a demand. Uh, but I think uh, behind the curtains there might still be uh, some exit ramp for. Israel as well, wherein uh, Hamas will have to give up on their uh, military capability one way or the other. And I think that is the kind of negotiated uh, settlement that might be on the card. But this is too early to uh, to guess what can, what that will be. But uh, yeah, uh, things will, will uh, take that path as well in the near future. Mohal? Yeah, so to... I mean, in conclusion, I mean, we just saw this cross the news wire that, I mean, as we're recording on early morning, uh, I believe it's like little past one out there in India on 14th of Saturday, 14th of October, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu says that Israel's counteroffensive in Gaza is, uh, quote, only the beginning, end quote. Mm. So, I mean, it's like a fast moving events. I mean, as we record by the time, you listeners listen to it, things might have moved along, but this is the latest on early morning on Saturday, October 14. So see, this violence is like bound to continue as Israel will look to take revenge on what was the worst day of killings of Jews since World War II, which is like quite something in that. I mean, it's almost certain at this point that Gaza is bound to be flattened quite a bit with Israeli airstrikes. I mean, they already asked the northern part to vacate, which is kind of... um, uh, really hard on the citizens because I mean Gaza is just like 365 square kilometers now, now let's say even if you take half of it theoretically like for un- 1 million people to move within 180 square kilometers with the amount of density it's kind of like uh, pretty hard on the citizens and uh, <clears throat> I mean the airstrikes is bound to kill like more civilians which is going to create a new cycle of violence where the Palestinians whose family members and loved or dear ones are killed are going to pick up arms and wanting to fight the Israelis and the Israelis will support more terrorist attacks which will mean like more reprisal attacks so I mean this is unfortunately the civilians on both sides are going to get uh, crushed very badly in this now Israel has mostly avoided going into Gaza since they left in 2006 but the sheer scale of attacks means they are left with lot little choice i mean but like the thing is like fighting in a high dense urban environment i mean gaza is like one of the most densely populated uh, areas in in the world uh, means that the israeli military advantage in terms of military hardware is kind of negated because i mean for example like if you have to take a tank in those narrow gullies where they could be hit with an anti-tank missile or even an RPG from all kinds of angles. So it's going to be very hard for them to uh, uh, fight. And like Hamas, 
because i mean this is not going to be a surprise attack by the israeli the idf so they're going to be ready and it's going to be a very bloody and long campaign where not only civilians will be uh, unfortunately losing their lives but also a lot of soldiers from both sides or fighting men are going to lose their lives so it's going to be a very bloody campaign i mean as we've seen in the iraq war in like a uh, mosul or like some of those uh, uh, mm-hmm. city based campaigns it takes a heavy toll on the soldiers and uh, it's going to be in, like a not pretty side at all i mean also to remember like a major complication is it's not just going in and destroying all the hamas fighters a major complication is there approximately there are like around 100 hostages as per the recent reports by bloomberg now some of these also are like foreign citizens so i mean these are bound to be used as human shields by hamas but the problem is let's say if there was a foreign citizen like a us and if israeli strike or a attack kills one of the foreign it creates like complications in relations of israel with uh, let's say a western country so yeah. um, it is going to be like very tricky that while trying to uh, kill hamas like you might accidentally even kill like hostages which might be innocent women and children unfortunately now a prisoner exchange also is going to be hard because if you remember like in uh, the i mean if you go back in history like gilad uh, shalit an idf soldier who was kidnapped in 2006 after five long years in captivity he was exchanged for like 1000 palestinian prisoners so like one for 1000 was exchanged now there are unconfirmed rumors that i mean this could be fake news for all we know that hamas might want their folks lodged in foreign prisons to be exchanged in uh, for the hostages so it is kind of tricky that the the israelis just can't go all guns blazing in there because there could be a ton of uh, hostages which are bound to be used as human shields against the attack i mean so i mean the abraham records so moving on to the abraham records now they had shown some promise that there was a possibility that we could move beyond this never ending cycle of clashes between israel and palestine but i mean this attack has undone years of hard diplomatic work and it will take some time before both sides the israelis and the middle eastern powers can come back to the table the solution even if it's i mean it's like next to impossible in this uh, time and day after this ghastly attack has to be say a political one not a military i mean israel could use all his military forces on palestine and still you're not going to uh, eliminate all the hamas or the islamic jihad terrorists out there and vice versa uh, however hard hamas and all the terrorist groups try like israel is not going to cease to exist which is one of their demand of them now back in the 90s late 90s both sides were close to a settlement but some thorny issues remained with like the status of jerusalem so eventually i think if they want to resolve it and stop this endless cycle of fighting there has to be some give and take on both sides for a final settlement now netanyahu's present government due to the it including members of the far right have turned to a hard right in terms of politics i mean they have expanded the settlements in the west bank which has been a constant source of resentment with the palestinians so like uh, netanyahu tried to push for a de facto one state solution by giving an implicit support to hamas to weaken the palestinian authority in the west bank but i think it's kind of spectacularly backfired on him now the question is whether he will take the fall as Golda Meir did post the failure to prepare for the 1973 Yom Kippur where only time will tell i mean he's literally like as i say like a cat 
he has like more lives than a cat like who has <laughs> nine lives so uh but with the another question is even with the splintering of the political leadership palestinian between hamas in gaza and palestinian authority in the west bank even if let's say negotiations were held like not anytime soon but like in the distant future i mean israel wouldn't even know whom to negotiate with because there's two yeah. separate entities so it is kind of next to impossible that um, uh so like even like netanyahu pushing the envelope has like backfired on him uh and i mean there has to be some kind of a resolution uh, uh eventually but uh, let's see i mean the, the immediate uh future looks like bleak on both sides for like civilians and uh, everybody involved kishor yeah yeah uh yeah one one uh, last dimension that i quickly wanted to uh, talk about uh, how this will manifest across the world capital like for example uh, france is now saying that uh, hamas categorically saying that hamas is a terror organization and you cannot uh, be seen as supporting them however there were large rallies uh, taken out in paris so i think in a way in a way these were reminiscent of the post uh, charlie hebdo uh protest that we saw in paris so i think uh, what we saw in uh, israel and in uh, gaza can now can now uh, easily spill over across the region and also possibly to other parts of the world as well yes you rightly pointed out that this looked like a 911 moment for uh, israel now just like how uh, president george bush said uh famously that day categorically that you are either with us or with the terrorists israel also will want to make a similar statement you are either with us or with the terrorists now that will hardly leave any room for any nuanced uh, uh, position and that is where things can go awry uh, when when uh, there are uh, any attempts for negotiated settlement uh i think also uh, all these countries around they will try to uh, urge palestinians uh, palestinians and the israelis to uh, stop violence of all forms and uh, try to get to the negotiation table but israel i think is currently no mood to do that so yeah let's see how things pan out i mean i just saw this cross the news where that the uh, sources with knowledge i have told a report that the us has urged israel to delay its ground operations in gaza until safe passage for palestinians can be secured so this is kind of complicates like where us wants them to take action against hamas but not uh before okay, the pa- so i mean it is just like a fast and moving fl- i mean also if you think of it like it's not that gaza is surrounded by israel and also there is also one border opening with egypt with but egypt, egypt has has constantly yeah. re- refused to open so it's like kind of ironical that egypt like which kinds to sympathies with the palestinian cause won't open that border crossing to let refugees into its own country where uh, where they are like they are boxed in by israel and the mediterranean sea there's at least a outlet wall where they can be let into e- egypt but egypt also is not refusing to cooperate which uh, kind of uh, increases the hardship on the palestinian people and i think there's uh, the palestinian sources i think they're like around probably like one around like a 1900 people 
dead in them so uh, the num- yeah, the numbers I mean, are rising even in uh, yeah the numbers uh, are rising uh, uh, i mean even in the gaza and like it's bound to go up as and now us has thrown this wrench in the uh, israeli plans and then also we haven't talked i mean we did talk about the uh, the hostages but i don't know how the hostages will figure into this and there are so many different countries so many people might want to secure their hostages before the israelis launch the attack so it's kind of very fluid and ever changing situation and we'll have to see in the days to come how it all pans out yeah and we and we didn't talk about the syrian uh, connection to all this uh, we heard reports <laughs> of uh, israel bombing uh, both uh, Uh, both the airport and Damascus and Aleppo. Yeah, uh, but like Syria, so, they they bomb almost every year. I mean, they, they do. They, they do, but this time around there was yeah uh, an aircraft uh, of uh, Iran trying to land there. So I think yeah, yeah. Uh, that way, uh, Israel is ever closer to fighting a direct fight with uh, Iran. Yeah, but I mean, the Lebanon also, there were like reports and I mean, the Hezbollah and like they might also open up another front, but it... I mean, if they would have opened it, they would have opened it by now. I mean, uh, they wouldn't have waited one whole week to open that new front. I mean, you never say yeah. never in like situation like Middle East, but I think they might just be uh, kind of not targeting, but I would say like trying to uh, trigger like kind of some kind of conflict, but not actively going for a looking for a whole scale war, you know. Yeah. Okay, uh, I think that uh, wraps up uh, today's topic. Uh, listeners, to continue hearing about such interesting topics, do subscribe to our channel, India Rising, wherever you are listening to us. If you are listening to us on YouTube, do press the bell icon to get notifications about our upcoming episodes. If you have not left us a review, we urge you to do so, as it helps other listeners like you in finding us. We would also like to hear from you if you have any suggestions on any topics that you would like us to cover. Do remember that these topics should be directly related to Indian foreign policy. Until the next time, this is Mohal and Kishore signing off.